Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression, and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds, one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Nazir Afzal, former Chief Crown Prosecutor for Northwest England, former Director in London, and former Chief Executive of the country's Police and Crime Commissioners. Nazir has prosecuted some of the most high-profile cases in the country, advised on many others, and has led nationally on several legal topics, including violence against women and girls, child sexual abuse, and honor-based violence. He is also national advisor on gender-based violence to the Welsh government. Nazir shares some poignant and compelling stories of his work in his recent book, The Prosecutor, which chronicles his 24-year career. We also speak with Nazir today about the impact of COVID-19 or the coronavirus on increasing instances of gender-based violence and policy, procedural, and other reforms that he offers for abuser accountability and increasing victim safety and security. Welcome, Nazir. You're most welcome. Thank you for being on the show. And I just wanted to check in to see how you're doing first, given your recent loss and the challenge of COVID. We're, we're fine. I mean, it's uh, these are very surreal times. Obviously, New York and large parts of America are suffering as badly as we are. But uh, in the UK, we've had pretty much a, a very secure lockdown now for six weeks or thereabouts. My brother passed away about just under a month ago, and it was a shock, and it remains a shock, but at the same time, we're not alone. There are thousands of us, I'm afraid, thousands of families that are losing and have lost their loved ones. So uh, we have um, a sort of uh, community of spirit, and uh, we want to ensure that others don't have to go down the route that we've gone down. So uh, I'm very grateful for all the condolences I've received, uh, the tributes that have been paid to my brother, and at the same time, uh, I'm reinvigorated and reinforced that we need to make sure that vulnerable people aren't impacted in the way they have been so far. You've been very vocal in recent news about the impact of COVID on domestic violence. And in Britain in particular, you've cited that approximately two women every week are murdered. And your estimate is that because of the coronavirus lockdown, perhaps up to five women weekly in Britain are being murdered. I want to first address this definition of domestic violence, of domestic violence that you use, which is domestic terrorism. I think a lot of people who are survivors, at least the ones in my community, we really appreciate the use of language to elevate our experience rather than how it's played out in the media and culturally where it's actually minimized in many ways. And so what makes you describe domestic abuse or domestic violence as domestic terrorism? Experience of victims and survivors like you, Terry, and others. I've been very fortunate. I'm a patron of uh, 11 NGOs in the UK, all of whom work in, with vulnerable women and vulnerable girls. And time and time again, they tell me it's not about the violence, it's about the fear of violence. It's about the fear to the wider community. And there have been so many occasions in the cases I've dealt with, I've probably prosecuted about 100 homicides a year, and many of them are, as you say, uh, homicides in the domestic setting. And in those cases, time and time again, whilst a trial is taking place of a perpetrator, 
you will hear NGOs telling me or NGOs tell me that women are walking into, into a particular center and saying, my family or my partners told me that I will go the way of this other person. And, and so they're clearly, perpetrators are clearly going to use other person's violence uh, in order to control uh, the women and girls in their lives, which is the same thing with terrorism. And I think I'm glad you use the word minimize. This is the problem with domestic abuse. It, it's, when you use terminology like domestic abuse, well, you are minimizing the impact. Uh, the, the reason why I've been using gender terrorism or domestic terrorism as a term, and I, and I do so again in my book, is for exactly that reason that I think the state and states generally, you know, jurisdictions wherever they are around the world, will begin to take it seriously if they realize its real impact, which is not just on the particular victim or particular survivor, but on the wider community of women and girls. And I think that's why I use that terminology. I also use that terminology because when, uh, when a traditional terrorist act takes place, uh, you can rest assured your government, any government, ends up throwing large sums of money at the subject, uh, whether it's new security service officers or new police officers or uh, new strategies, whatever it may be. By using that terminology, I'm also encouraging governments to start funding the work in this area in the same way that they do when it comes to uh, traditional terrorism. And I think you've got to use that kind of business case. You've got to use that kind of terminology with people who don't understand the moral case or the emotional case, or even the legal case. And so you, you, made, you mentioned that figure of uh, two a week. That's been pretty consistent for decades now, or at least two decades, where two women a week were killed by their partners or ex-partners. Uh, and we've noticed, uh, without a single doubt in my mind, we've noticed that it's gone up to about five a week during the, the five, six weeks that we've been currently in lockdown. Uh, when you are leaving the woman or the girl with the perpetrator and telling her, with your mixed messaging that she can't leave the house, uh, you're putting that person at great risk. And we are not finding, we expected this, we anticipated it. Government didn't anticipate it, or government didn't expect it, or government didn't plan for it, I think more likely than not. And what now they have to do is uh, ensure that victims and survivors, firstly, are told that you can leave your home if you are at risk. The other message I, I tend to give professionals is actually her home is where she should stay. It's a perpetrator should be somewhere else, preferably in a, in a jail cell. And the, the third thing that we, we try and um, articulate around this is that we want funding for NGOs who work in this field to reflect the increase in their work. Our helplines in the UK have seen an increase of about 50% in calls. Uh, so 50% so, you know, more calls uh, from survivors and victims. Uh, and yet, of course, their income is is as it always was, very poor. And uh, additionally, they don't have the ability to provide a ready, rapid, expeditious uh, protection and services because their subjects are locked down too. So we're pleased to be able to say the UK government only this week announced a significant uh, sum of money, uh, just shy of $100 million, which will be given uh, to charities and support groups and organizations who are working with victims and survivors as an emergency sector, which will hopefully deal with the gaps they find in their funding. The other issue, Terry, is that uh, organizations would ordinarily rely upon public funding, charitable funding, uh, philanthropists. All of, those, all of that funding has gone away during the lockdown. Um, the philanthropists are rightly spending money on things like food banks. The public are not giving money because they don't have money of their own. And so somebody has to plug that gap. And we've been calling for government to do that, 
And finally, we've got a commitment from the UK government. The important thing, of course, is detail. Let's look at the detail of their commitment. But potentially, we have something in the region of 90 to 100 million dollars, 75 million pounds, which will be allocated to NGOs to help them during this extraordinary emergency period. That sounds like amazing news for Britain. And I can't imagine that happening in the US, especially given you know, our political, how partisanship has really played a, a key factor in creating an inadequate response to the virus, to this health epidemic. But you mentioned in your response that you've covered a little bit of the crimes that you've In your response just now, you covered some of the other crimes that you've prosecuted during your long career, which is terrorism and how you've prosecuted radical extremists, prosecuted besides domestic violence, gang rapes, all kinds of sex trafficking, et cetera. Yeah, all (laughs) kinds of horrible things. And you liken domestic violence to terrorism specifically, but can you talk about what, if anything, do political terrorists rapists and domestic terrorist coercive controllers have Mm. in common Mm. in terms of personality Mm. traits? Uh, I'm glad you you mentioned that. Um, Again, when it comes to traditional radical extremist terrorism, want of a better term, I again have been saying, and others have also been saying the same thing, that actually very often the first victim of a radical extremist is the woman in his own home. I can think of this happened going back historically to the troubles in Northern Ireland when we had Irish Republican terrorism and we had Unionist terrorism. So going through the 80s and 90s, there was research carried out by Queen's University in Northern Ireland that again said exactly that, that very often the radical extremist would would harm his wife or daughter or mother or whomever first before he goes out and starts killing other people. Again, uh, there's a great book by Joan Smith uh, in the UK who has written a book called Homegrown, Homegrown Terrorism, which was published last year. And Joan articulates the same case, namely that if you look at the backgrounds of pretty much every high-profile extremist or mass gun killer, uh, you know, school shooter, whatever you may be, which you have, thankfully we don't have much of. But when you look at their backgrounds, you will see misogyny. You will see a hatred of women, you will see violence against women. The best example I can give you, actually, is a, something that is in the, my book, but not necessarily widely known. Back in the late 90s, I was dealing with a gang of radical extremist terrorists, uh, for want of a better term, in, in East London. And the police had compiled their evidence. And I came to the conclusion there wasn't enough. They hadn't yet gone over the barrier to be prosecuted for extremists, uh, for terrorism offences in the traditional sense. However, when you listen to their covert tapes that have been recorded, etc., their attitude to women was abundantly clear. Uh, and they talked about raping people. They talked about the abuse of their partners or members within their family. And so what we did was we built a case against them for that, for their violence against women and girls. And we convicted them of that. And then, we, then they end up in prison. So what we end up doing is by disrupting them by dealing with the way they treat women and girls uh, in a criminal justice fora, we were able to prevent them from going down the route of blowing themselves up or blowing somebody else off somewhere else. So that, that was uh, something, a very, very early lesson for me, but it went beyond that. And so whenever I, I have conversations in all of my roles uh, with the senior police colleagues, I always tell them, they often, I remember going to one event, which again, I talk about in my book, where the police had their priorities for the year yeah, listed. Number one was 
terrorism. Number two was serious and organized crime. Number three was whatever it was. And Violence Against Women and Girls was down there at number five or six on the list. And I said to them, do you know that if you tackle Violence Against Women and Girls, you will tackle number one, number two, number three, number four. And, you know, I presented the evidence to them. And to their credit, they turned it around. And Violence Against Women and Girls suddenly became their number one priority. And yes, at the same time, they were having an impact on all the other types of offending that I mentioned. In relation to a, 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 a rape gang, for want of a better, better, better phrase, in, uh, in, the, in the UK, when I had the 10 men of that gang in custody awaiting their trial, the drug trade went down 50%. Other areas of criminality are impacted. It's not as straightforward. Your criminality is just one area of criminality. But time and time again, Terry, you will find misogyny, violence against women and girls there in their DNA. And you can, as a, as a practitioner, a professional, you, know, you mentioned the point about whether there's any leadership in your country for the kinds of things that we're trying to do here. The only way we want leadership in this country is by building that bigger picture, that actually you can protect women and girls, but also therefore protect the wider society. I totally agree with you. And I'm so heartened to know that there are people in other parts of the world who actually have this lens uh, for understanding power and abuse, because I see a lot of you were talking about NGOs getting funding and the increase of 90 to 100 million that Britain is allocating to nonprofits there. But, you know, a lot of the NGOs in this, at least in the US, they're very, very siloed in terms of their approach. So even when they're dealing with, for example, immigration reform or mass incarceration, you know, ending mass incarceration, prison reform, issues of racial inequality, etc. Poverty, for example, homelessness, none of these issues have a gendered lens. And as you said, if you center gender, if you center violence against women and girls, then you're going to be addressing all these issues. Absolutely. I don't know if, if you have any ideas of how we can make that conversation something viable, because even the word gender is pe something that people dispute. No, I, I totally understand that. and I, I get that. And it's much more complicated given the debate we're having around sex generally. I think a number of things. One is that we, we're building coalitions here of NGOs. Historically, NGOs have been created by phenomenal people who sat around a kitchen table and decided they need to do something, you know? And, uh, and then, they be, as you mentioned, the word, they become siloized. Uh, they become very projective, projective of, of their work. There's, a, there's fighting for funding going on. They don't necessarily want to cooperate. But one of the things that's happened in the UK, particularly over the last decade, is because of austerity, because of the impact of the financial crash in the late 2008-9, they've started building coalition. They've realized they may not necessarily have, for example, somebody that can do bid writing to, to get the funds, but somebody else does. And so they can work together on that. And also... Across, ge yeah, across geographies, you know, not, I don't know, I've, I've been to New York a number of times, and I think that you can, it's very often you, you're so siloized, you're siloized to your neighborhood, you don't even work beyond your neighborhood, never mind from borough to borough or, or across, the, across the city or across the county. But we've, we've do, done a lot of that now, we need to do more of it. But I think with all the, the NGOs that I'm a patient, I, I'm building, in effect, or working with them to build a coalition, which makes them much, much stronger in in terms of capacity, in terms of capability, and in terms of voice, uh, which are all things that, that matter. 
I think the other issue, the other thing that we've we've learned the hard way is, I mentioned earlier on, that people very often get the legal case. They say it's criminal. They, they often very get the, they get the moral case. They say it's immoral what's happening. They often get the emotional case. But then sometimes you've got to use the business case. And we carried out some research, which was government funded about four, five years ago, that said that the cost of domestic abuse or domestic violence, the cost of domestic violence to our gross national products, uh, gross, you know, so our GDP was £66 billion a year, which is about $85, $90 billion a year, which was and is probably twice the education budget for the whole country, twice our defence budget. Yours is a bigger defence budget. It's twice our defence. When you put figures like that in the public domain, which are properly academically sourced and peer-reviewed, etc., that's a very strong case for saying that actually if you invested a small amount of that, a billion dollars, $2 billion in primary grassroots services, in the NGOs, in policing, in prosecution work, in, in, in that area, that actually you downstream, you're going to have all enormous sum save. Uh, you know, it's literally in, uh, investing to save and, and not just saving money, but save lives. And I think that that, that again is another uh, tool that we've used using data, using, uh, say, business cases in order to persuade government and authority more generally, that there is actually a savings for them as well downstream. And I think sometimes I'm afraid, Terry, you have to do that. It's, I get the moral case and, and I get the legal case, uh, but sometimes the business case is important too. As someone who has a business degree, I've always tried to convince my colleagues in the nonprofit space to make that business case. However, I do want to say that when the business case has been used in other areas, let's say immigration reform in the U.S., or in making the case for renewable energy and taking climate action on the climate crisis, people have been able to justify it away by not taking action and taking maybe the opposite approach. Like in the case of immigration, we know that immigrants are vibrant to our economic thriving, and yet, I mean, we can take a look now, right? And in, in all the people who are the essential workers on their front lines, they're all immigrants, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. And yeah. yet people don't care. The economic case Dis isn't enough. And there's still this cultural sort of ideology that people are using to protect their privilege. Do you know, we're, we're never, the battle against hate is a long, long battle. And uh, we're not going to win it today. Uh, and you're absolutely right. The, the experience of, of uh, immigrants in your country is the same as experience in ours. You know, more than 100 of our health professionals who have died come from minority backgrounds, which is like the bulk of it, disproportionate numbers, because they are key workers, because they're, at the, they're on the front line, they are providing services, et cetera, which puts them at tremendous risk. We have to look for opportunity. And it's horrible to say this, but there is opportunity in this crisis. Public in the United Kingdom, uh, what day is it today? Wednesday. Every, every Thursday evening, 8 p.m., the public in the UK, millions of people, stand outside their doors and clap for the people who are working at the moment to keep them safe. And that means invariably they're clapping for people from minorities uh, who are immigrants uh, who, or sons or daughters of immigrants. Uh, and so I think that the narrative is changing very slowly in small amounts, but it is changing, a recognition that the people who are providing the most for you are often the people that you pay the least uh, or often you don't even recognize at all. Uh, I'm, hope I'm hopeful that we will build on that in the weeks and months to come. Rest assured, I will. But I think that people need to 
use the opportunity of having shown the people what value people add and making that more important and making that something that they all understand, appreciate. And of course, gender is disproportionately impacted by COVID. You know, women are invariably in the nursing profession and, you know, that may, or in caring professions. So whilst we're not yet in the position of being able to dig down to the data, it would not surprise me that women are disproportionately being impacted in terms of losing their lives or being harmed by what's happening. So we must be optimistic and think, well, actually, we can use or we can benefit from what's happened or from the, the way that people have changed their attitudes, perhaps. But I, I get your point entirely about, you know, hate, hate is learned behavior, Terry. When you were born, you didn't hate anybody or anything. Uh, maybe broccoli, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but hate is learned behavior. So you, you learn it from people around you, from your families, from your schools. You know, we've got to play the long game. And the long game also involves education. The other part of the work that we're doing in the UK, which I hope that, you know, I know I'm, I'm sure you are doing something similar, is around educating the next generation, our young people. The number of cases I've prosecuted where the victim didn't know that she was a victim because she thought this man loved her. Well, she didn't know what an abusive relationship was. If her only relationships were the ones that her parents had, and that was abusive, the only people around her had abusive relationships, she's never going to know what a, what a positive, loving relationship is. So why not do that? Why, not, why don't we do that in schools or a, through the education system? And not expect teachers to do that. I don't expect a teacher to teach relationship education between geography and science. You know, that's not where we want it. We want specialists like yourself and others who are paid. That's the other point. It's not a voluntary activity. If we really value something, we pay for it. We want people like you going into schools and, and colleges and talking to young people about a good relationship, with a bad relationship, what the signs are, the, the more general uh, issues around misogyny and hate uh, and uh, patriarchy, all that sort of stuff. Bring that to them at that stage. Then, you know, my children are now uh, late teens, early 20s, and I, you know, they hold me to account on a regular basis for some of the stupid things I, I say because I'm unconscious bias. It doesn't matter that I might think what I do or how passionate I am about this piece of work. Rest assured, I will say something stupid, and they'll hold me up and hold me to account. That's why we need young people better trained, educated, to hold our adults to account but ultimately, in a few years, they will be the, the leaders. They will be the people in positions of power, the people who are uh, allocating funds, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll be in a better place because of that. Do you have sons? I have three sons and one daughter. Okay, so when you say your children hold you to account, your sons are holding you to account too. Oh, massive. They're, they're, they're more so. More so. My, my daughter regularly takes the piss out of me because uh, whenever she sees me on the television or something, she'll say, Dad, not women and girls again. You know, uh, it's like... Uh, which is, you know, it's her way of saying, uh, you know, that that's what I'm known for in the UK. Uh, but my son's very much so. Absolutely. They will take me to task over some of my draconian dinosaur attitudes, uh, which without me knowing have been ingrained in me, you know. But it, ultimately, they're the generation that will fix. Uh, and climate change, you mentioned, you know, it's Greta's generation. It's that generation because they're going to live beyond us, hopefully. And, uh, and they will fix the problems that we put in power. But we as adults now need to do things that will enable them to be empowered, skilled, uh, and ready to deal with these issues. Since you mentioned children, that was going to be my next question around, in particular, the child sex abuse ring that brought you to prominence, which is Rockdale. Is yeah. that how you pronounce it? Yeah, yeah. Rochdale. Rochdale. Rochdale the yeah. Rochdale child Rochdale. sex abuse ring. Before you prosecuted it, there were some missteps from the mm. previous prosecutor, the, the police. 
the social workers, oh, everybody, everybody. Yes. Yeah, so everybody. can you kind of walk us through what they did and why they didn't choose to move forward and how okay. you were brought in and why you took a different approach? If you think we have a young group of group of young women who are being passed around um, by young women, I mean, 14, 15, 16 year old girls, you know, who are being passed around by a group of men as uh, entertainment for them. Uh, in fact, one of the men said he was given a girl for his 16th birthday. You know, that was the kind of attitude they had. The police get involved very early. The social services don't want to know anything about them. Their view is that these uh, victims were, were living very chaotic and troubled backgrounds, almost as if they were blaming them, literally, for their abuse. Uh, and so they weren't taking them seriously. In fact, they, they would often use the word child prostitution uh, because they were getting money or drugs or food uh, you know, without seeing that they're, they're children, which I think, you know, because all of that. But anyway, um, they, nobody was taking that seriously. One young woman made an allocation to police. Police carried out an investigation, which was as poor as you can imagine. At the end of that investigation, they took the view that nobody would believe her. The jury, a jury wouldn't believe her. What is the point? We have a jury system like you. Uh, what is the point of putting her in a courtroom? The prosecutors at that time agreed. Um, you know, they took that same view that uh, she would somehow not be believed. Neither would the other victims. Uh, and... So the case was simply closed, end of. Uh, by chance, design, uh, whatever it may be, I ended up being chief prosecutor for the Northwest of England. I arrived uh, in 2011. And almost because, I, because I've been aware of this issue in the back of my mind, I just simply asked my teams, do you have anything like this that you've been dealing with that you've not, we've not dealt with properly? And to their credit, they brought this case to me. And I looked it out. I watched, uh, BBC had made a film about it called Three Girls, which I think, probably available. It's available on Netflix here. I don't know if it's available uh, in the US. But in the, uh, that describes the whole film, but any, the whole case. But in any event, having watched the video disclosures of the victims, I thought, well, I believe her. You know, why, why are we assuming that a jury wouldn't believe her? And it's our fault if we haven't believed her. Let's build the cases. So we found 47 victims at that time. We decided, well, I decided that six of them were strong enough to put in a courtroom. By building and supporting these six victims, we were able to build a case against nine perpetrators, men aged, aged between 18 and 59. The case was um, fraught with consequences because um, the far right, because of the, the ethnicity of the particular perpetrators, they came from British uh, Asian backgrounds. The view was that somehow this was a, a race issue. The victims that we were aware of at the time were white girls, British white girls. And the perpetrators were British Asian. The reality, of course, is whilst the ethnicity of the men was an issue, it was the availability and vulnerability of these young girls that was the reason why nobody was taking it seriously. So I reversed the decision not to prosecute. I brought the case. We took the case to court. Uh, we had the far right outside of court every day uh, with their hateful uh, attempt to try and damage the case. They, were, they weren't keen. They often talk about how they uh, want to protect the victims. They weren't interested in that. What they wanted was actually a mistrial. They wanted the case to stop because then they could say, there's no justice in this world, take the streets. They wanted to race. And we were committed to providing as much support as we could to those victims. It was a horrible, uh, challenging court case. But nonetheless, at the end of that court case, the men were convicted. Uh, and then literally, we're talking about May 2012, the world suddenly started looking at me, suddenly the UK world anyway, uh, including our Prime Minister, contacted me and rings me up and says, can you explain what's going on? 
all of this was happening, it was hidden in plain sight and we weren't dealing with it. Uh, and it was just because we were able to shine a, shine a light on it that finally people began to take this seriously. And there were enormous consequences to me and to others. But more importantly, we finally gave justice uh, to a group of women and girls who'd previously been left behind, ignored, not listened to. That's, those are the issues to my mind. And it was then necessary to change the process for everybody else. So we brought in brand new guidelines for prosecutors and police officers. We also ensured that cases that had previously been badly dealt with were re-looked at in the hope that we could restart them, and some of them were restarted. Uh, the police were, the UK government was persuaded to make it a national priority. And the reason for that, the, reason, the importance of that is because the funding comes with a national priority. So suddenly the police had funding to employ specialist police officers. Uh, I made sure we had specialist prosecutors. Uh, and it got to the stage uh, within a very short space of time that we have the highest conviction rate for the abuse of children in our history. Uh, and that's uh, down to enormous teamwork. It's an enormous, enormous commitment from a lot of people. But the reality is that the failings of everybody, was um, everybody charged with safeguarding these young girls failed them because it was either too difficult uh, or uh, the girls didn't trust any adults, so why should we bother with them? or because they had chaotic and troubled backgrounds or they'd been involved in low-level criminality. All sorts of reasons were given, Terry. But at the end of the day, nothing was done about that. We put that right. What is it that makes these group of people who work on the front line, especially the social workers, not an ally to these victims? I think, I think it was because they, they were overburdened with their own casework. So everybody has a lot, a lot of cases and a lot of... Uh, and so you end up prioritizing and what they made a judgment, actually, I can deal with 10 normal cases a week, but if I have to devote my time to this young woman who literally hates authority and hates adults, that would mean I'd have to spend a whole week on this. And, well, no, I'd rather do with the other 10 ones. You know, it was too difficult for some. For some, it was, uh, there was issues around political correctness, that maybe there was, they thought they might stir uh, some, some of the race hate issues that, that we have to deal with, for some of them. Uh, others, it was just lack of capacity or capability. They just did not know. It was a, it's never, a, you know, whenever somebody says to me conspiracy or competence, I always say it's a competence issue. It's incompetence. People not doing or not being able to do their job. And that's because we don't train them, we don't support them, we don't guide them, we don't lead them. And that was, I think, in large, large part of the reason why these cases just were not taken as seriously as they should have been. Did you happen to see, I don't know if you get this in the UK, Netflix has a series called Unbelievable? I've not seen it, but I've heard a lot about it. I, 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 I totally get everything, you've, everything about that is exactly my experience. I was going to say it sounded very similar. Yeah. yeah, it's exactly my experience. With regard to the fact that these perpetrators were, first of all, South Asian men, were, was there support in the South Asian community for the perpetrators? Absolutely. People, again, people are making ridiculous assumptions. And it's a very, um, what's it? hateful assumption that all minorities are the same. You know, just because these men were brown, that somebody, all brown men would stand behind them. No, on the contrary, most, as we've talked earlier on, most people from uh, backgrounds or members of minorities are the most law-abiding members of society. They hated the fact these people existed. They despised them because they damaged everything that they believed in. And, but they weren't being listened to either. So if they come forward and made an allegation against another member of their community, the police would have said, well, not really interested right now, you know? 
And so, absolutely, they, they remain to this date absolutely determined. I mean, it's, it's been very painful. There's no getting away from it. You know, we've had now more than 300 or so men prosecuted for this, this type of uh, street offending. And a vast majority, or certainly a, a majority, are from uh, British South Asian background. And so you can imagine the far right to hijack the issue. There is all sorts of um, tensions created by that. But the bulk of the communities, are, you know, they're clapping when we deal with these cases. Because the other thing that needs to be said, Terry, is that what, was, what we were missing is the number of victims from minority backgrounds. Whilst it was difficult for a British white girl to come forward and talk about what had happened to her, can you imagine what it was like for a British Pakistani girl to come forward? She has issues of honour and, you know, all those kinds of issues, uh, shame within the family. So they're even less likely to make an allegation. And so subsequently, we became aware of victims from those communities too. So absolutely, this was never an issue of, of us and them. This was an issue of all of us working together. If the perpetrators were celebrities with some status and power and were revered by the community and culture, do you think that the response would have been different? Well, they were, some of them. They were, some of them were revered. There were local councillors, one or two of them. They were um, you know, business leaders or businessmen, not business leaders. When I read about this case, my first thought was <laughs> in the U.S., there is still, you know, to this day, a backlash against people who want to point out Michael Jackson as a predator or R. Yeah, Kelly, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. or most recently Kobe Bryant died. Yeah. yeah. Tragic cra plane crash. But, yeah. but when you point out like the wholeness of their contributions, Life. including their predatory behavior, people want to just be revisionist or erase it. And so I was wondering what made these people different? Like why were they supporting accountability? versus remaining, keeping them on a pedestal. It was a, a minority of this minority were people who had businesses. and Because they thought, they thought well, when you're not dealing with the issue as, as we weren't for maybe two decades, these men thought they could act with impunity. They thought, I am immune from prosecution. I can carry on abusing whomever I like, whatever I like, because nobody's going to touch me. And so they could... They could maintain a semblance of normality in their lives, you know, running businesses, whatever it may be, or restaurants, or whatever it might be. Uh, at the same time, they could spend their quote-unquote downtime abusing women and girls. They came from all manner of backgrounds, and, uh, but what, what unified them was their view of women and girls, namely that they were dispensable, disposable, abusable. And then the fact that the authorities, all elements of authority, were not interested in what happened to these young women and girls made it so much easier for them to do what they did. At the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned some priorities uh, that you identified for dealing with this COVID crisis, including increased funding for NGOs. And you also mentioned there's this concept that when survivors are not safe, that they have to be placed in shelters. And some of us in this community are pushing against that and saying, why does the survivor need to leave and be displaced and become homeless? Why can't the abuser just be put in jail, like you said? So I read about your comments with regard to criminal justice, and I would really like for you to clarify, what do you think the role of criminal justice should be with regard to abuser accountability? Hold them accountable. It's as simple as that. I think that um, we've been on a journey in the UK, and I'm pretty sure you are as well in the US. 20 or 30 years ago, the word domestic was treated with disgust almost. 
that nobody took it seriously at all. Uh, and then we began to start taking it more seriously, and we now, I hope, do take it very seriously, uh, although there are significant issues nonetheless. And so uh, I've, that, I think, is the key to it all. That everybody's, we have a number of bits of terminology. One, you, in terms of, we've just started a campaign in the UK called There's No Place Like Home, which is what I said a moment ago, that actually the victim should stay at home. The perpetrator should leave. Very often he'll have the, the funds to do so, if he doesn't have the funds to do so, uh, and there's, there's enough evidence to be brought before a court and dealt with. But so there's, that, that's, number one is um, re- recognizing that the victim shouldn't have to suffer and take her family and her children somewhere else. Uh, you know, the perpetrator should be paying the consequences. But secondly, it's ensuring that you have the specialist police officers, the specialist prosecutors, uh, the specialist courts and, and judges, etc., who understand the issues here. That you don't have to have massive sets of bruises on your face to be the victim of abuse, uh, that it can be because of coercive control, it can be because of financial control, it can be all manner of uh, elements to what we know as being domestic abuse. And that, I think, has been an educative process and continuing process. Uh, we brought in coercive control as part of the definition in 2015. We've got a new domestic abuse bill uh, legislation currently going through the UK Parliament right now, which is introducing new orders, uh, new, new notices, providing new protections. So it's unfinished business, but we are, the legislation is, is improving, often if not totally led by survivor experience. And then practitioners have got better at what they're doing. My big concern is that once we come out of pandemic, that pandemic, the pandemic of domestic abuse will remain. And what will happen is that we will have cuts to be made to services. Who's going to pay for, I don't know about you, in the UK we've been furloughing staff, the government has been investing billions to pay people's salaries whilst they're in lockdown. But at some point, government will have to recoup that money. And when they start recouping that money, unless we are vigilant and um, forceful and together in our response, unfortunately, they'll take it from the easy targets. And the easy targets will be refuge accommodation, will be from uh, shelter accommodation, as you call it, will be from services, will be from policing, prosecuting, et cetera, et cetera. So we've got to, uh, again, build another coalition in preparation for what's going to happen in a few months' time when I have little doubt that you will have the same experience. The government will want to cut services. We've got to ensure that if, if they do cut services, they recognize that this is one area they can't cut. But when it comes to justice, you know, this, you know, my book is... Um, it starts with my father telling me when, as a child that there's no justice in this world uh, because I, I was bullied black and blue when I was young. And it ends with me delivering and helpfully delivering justice to hundreds of people from very vulnerable backgrounds. There is justice, and that comes from everybody working together. That comes from supporting victims and survivors. That comes from supporting NGOs who provide the support for victims and survivors. And that's from professionals upping their game so they recognize that it's not just about their response. It's also about the, the root causes. The root causes are misogyny, patriarchy, inequality more generally. And then unless you address those root causes, you're simply going to be dealing with the, the symptoms or the consequences for years to come. You've talked about incarceration as something that you're, I don't know that I understand your 
perspective on whether incarceration and putting someone in jail is for rehabilitation or if it's if it's just for protection, public safety. Both. It should be both. Absolutely both. I mean, you've got to you've got to punish. Sentencing always has to be about punishment. It also has to be about deterrence. So you're sending out a message to others, uh, but it also has to be about rehabilitation. The problem we have in the UK, and it may well be not one you have experienced, is that our prison systems are overcrowded, that somebody can be locked up for 23 hours a day in a cell. There is no educative process, no rehabilitation. They serve their sentence, however long it may be. They come out unreformed, unrehabilitated, and pick on the next victim. There is a, ample research, isn't there, that once they abuse one victim, that's not the end of it. There could be a chain of victims going back several years. So unless we rehabilitate, we're just simply delaying the next victim's uh, issue. And so I'm very much a very much believer in that. My problem we've got is that we just don't have the resources right now in the rehabilitation uh, arena. When you say rehabilitation, are you saying that they're going to reduce recidivism because they're choosing not to abuse or re-offend, but still potentially because they're maintaining the same mindset and ideology, they just don't want to suffer the consequences. So internally, they're not really rehabilitated. They're just rehabilitated in terms of their behavior choices. No, obviously, in an ideal world, we want to change them completely. But you know, I don't imagine, we haven't got the resources to change them a little bit at the moment, never mind change them completely. But absolutely, I want them to, and this is where the survivor's experience comes in. It's no good me going into a prison and talking to a group of men who are, and saying, look, you, this is wrong. It's, well, it's important that men, by the way, stand up and speak up about this subject. But it's better that you and, and people like you and NGOs who work in this field, who are able to make them understand the consequences of what they did, uh, not just the justice consequences, but the real life consequences. And I think that's how you rehabilitate. One of the things that we, we're very keen on, the UK government haven't done this yet. We're, whilst this law is currently going through Parliament, we want them to amend the law. So in, we, we want a register of domestic abuse perpetrators. At the moment, if you, if you commit a sexual violence offence, there is a sexual violence register. So when, you're, when you leave, your name is on that. There are conditions attached to where you can live. If you, if you get into a relationship, you need to report to the police, etc. Et we want to extend that to domestic abuse because, as I said a moment ago, the likelihood is if you haven't changed, if you haven't changed your mindset, you will do the same thing again. And we want to be able to keep monitoring these people. We want to be able to ensure that you, the victim or potential victim, has the ability to understand who you're dealing with. Um, and therefore protect yourself if needs be. Uh, it's much more complicated changing their behaviors, but, I, but we have to start somewhere. Getting back to the analogy with terrorists, Rachel Louise Snyder, in her book, No Visible Bruises, one of the guests on our show, talked about when she was comparing domestic abuse terrorists and political terrorists, how when you have someone hostage, let's say a woman being held at gunpoint, in, in a murder-suicide kind of situation. The goal of the domestic abuser in that home is to terrorize and is not to get freedom and leave like a political terrorist could be, like get money or some, some other bigger outcome. And so it's yeah. really hard to, I mean, it's impossible, in other words, to negotiate with that person because their goal is cruelty and is to maintain that level of terror. And they could stay in that situation you know, as long as possible. So it gets back to the question of, do you think abusers, domestic abusers, like coercive controllers can be changed and rehabilitated if you gave unlimited 
money and were able to allocate, is that something that you would put money in versus other pots? Uh, that's such a big question. Uh, you know, I don't know the answer. I mean, I, I can't think of anybody that I've dealt with who has been completely redeemed and, uh, and completely changed. I, I, they don't, unless they've been, you know, I don't know, if you, you know, the idea of chemical castration, et cetera, et cetera. You know, unless you go down that kind of route, I can't imagine that we'll ever be risk-free. We have, a, we have a society where we don't think people should be locked up forever. Well, in the UK, we don't. Uh, and therefore, we have to work with the, within the constraints of our, what the public think is appropriate and right. And so we've got to find a mechanism or, uh, where we can minimize the risk as best as possible. I go back to my point that, yeah, we will not get out of the woods for some time to come. But that's why we need to work with young people and children. Even those who are abusers very often have suffered childhood abuse themselves or some kind of, some kind of childhood experience themselves. Uh, or certainly goes back to my point about their education has not been good enough to make them realize what their, what their behavior amounts to. But we have to work within the constraints of our system. And our system does not allow us to lock somebody up forever. We've got to, but that means that we've got to do everything in our power to minimize the risk that they pose. In the U.S., there's a growing movement to find alternatives to incarceration that, quote-unquote, center the survivor need or desire to, quote-unquote, fix the abuser. And that comes in the form of very often restorative justice practices. It, It intersects also with the prison abolition movement. And a lot of us who are in this space, myself included, believe that we can abolish prisons if you actually criminalize coercive control and implement its criminalization effectively, because it will be a deterrent, as you said, to all men, not just to black and brown men. I agree. And so the question kind of remains, when you were talking about survivors not necessarily being perceived by the social workers as quote-unquote good victims for prosecution, in, in many ways, are these same social workers and advocates are saying, well, if we actually want to believe them and center their quote-unquote agency, then we need to create interventions that address their desire to stay within the marriage or the relationship. And I have a particular perspective on it that I've shared you know, widely in this podcast, but I want to hear what your perspective is around that approach when you're saying, I will center your agency by creating programs to help fix the abuser and for you to stay with your abuser? I wouldn't want them to stay with the abuser. I don't think, I don't think that's right. For the reasons you've indicated, that coercive control is so in deeply ingrained in some men, well, many men, that the idea that they can suddenly change just like that uh, is, not, is just not, not going to happen. We've got to obviously throw the book at those people who commit the offending. I'm, I'm, glad, we, I'm glad you said what you said about coercive control. Now, it's because it's relatively new territory for the UK. There are now hundreds, if not thousands, of prosecutions, but the sentencing is pretty poor. People are not getting long, long sentences of imprisonment. And so all you've done is slap them on the wrist. They come out thinking and believing exactly the same as they ever did. So if we are able to somehow improve our response to coercive control, uh, then we will have a, it will have a bigger impact on all the other areas uh, of domestic abuse that you've, that you've highlighted. So I, I get that entirely. But I, I go back to my point about what can we do today and tomorrow? Uh, and today and tomorrow, 
something I mentioned in, just in passing a moment ago about the role of men in this. You know, I, I, was, I was talking at an event not long ago in, in the UK with a 300 men in a room. And they were, it was White Ribbon Day, which I don't know if you have in the, in the US. And um, they, they were all there apparently showing their solidarity with women uh, who suffered abuse. And I was speaking immediately after lunch. And during the luncheon period, I noticed the moment that most of the men simply wanted a selfie with me or the selfie with the chief police officer or the selfie of the local uh, mayor. And I realized they were only there, the bulk of them, because they wanted to be seen to be there. They weren't there because they believed in any different approach or advantage. So I stood up to make my speech and I said to them after my introduction, one in four women suffer domestic abuse in the United Kingdom. One in five women suffer sexual violence. One in five women suffer stalking harassment. Two women a week are murdered. Ten women a week kill themselves because of domestic abuse in the UK. So which quarter of you are still beating your women uh, and your wives? And, and you can imagine what happened in that room. It was like, oh. But unless we men challenge the behaviours of other men and, you know, not lip service, they need to actually do something different, uh, we're still going to be in this same position. Often peer-to-peer stuff works. You know, I, I've, there are a number of examples. One, one, let me, before I lose the point, we don't believe in restorative justice for domestic abuse in the UK. It's one area of criminality where we don't allow it. It was, being, it was piloted in a couple of parts of the country. Then we learned about it and said, no, because when you're in that relationship, men will say whatever they want to get out of that room. So we, we don't believe in restorative justice for domestic abuse. But unless men speak up and join together as I say, as allies, real allies, not just looking for a selfie or kudos or esteem or a tick in a box, then we'll, we'll have this problem for generations to come. And I'm deluded a little bit because you, you had a spate of million man marches, didn't you, a few years ago? About five years ago, I, I tried to get a million, I, I suggested a million man march in the UK uh, in support of women. And everybody just laughed at me. And they were right to laugh at me because we might have got a million men, but most of them would have been there just to make themselves look good. The work that needs to happen needs to happen really at the grassroots. It needs to happen, as I say, either in education, either in schools, either in uh, social clubs or in local communities, wherever they may be, in order to change, change men's attitudes. If we can't change their attitudes, we lock them up. And we lock them up for as long as we need to. You talked about the beginning of your book and a reference to your father and your being bullied. What lessons can you offer from your own experience as a victim? Mm to help other young people make the choice not to oppress? As strange as it may sound, very recently, uh, just before my book came out, somebody contacted me online, I'm on Twitter, via DM, and said, do you remember me from school? And uh, I said, yeah, I do. You bullied me back then. And um, he goes, oh, oh. They completely blocked out of his life that he had. Now he's worshipping me, buying my book, and wanting me to sign the damn thing. Uh, uh, whereas 40 odd years ago he was the first in line to give me a good kick I hope he's learned from his I, I, did, I wanted to publicly shame him I decided not to name him or anything what I learned was that unless you stand up to bullies you will always be bullied and unless you work together as networks and communities and build resilience of networks you're not going to be strong enough to fight them off and you know I've spent my career now uh, not only dealing with the bullies professionally but also working with cross-agency, uh, with NGOs, with the, with the third sector, with other parts of society, in order for all of us to speak with one voice on the subject. That's the only way that, one, the bad guys realize that we're serious, 
but also the authority government, whomever it may be, realize what they need to do differently. And we've had made strides in the last 15 years or thereabouts, which we did not have. You know, we've not even touched on a based violence and forced marriage, Terry, but, you know, 2004, I organized the world's first conference on forced marriage in the UK. And in fact, your, your US State Department contacted me several times and we advised them. I was advising them on your response to tackling the, those issues. Uh, suddenly, they stopped contacting me in November 2016. I have no idea who was elected then. That might have had an impact on that. But, you know, we need to share learning across jurisdictions. We need to share learning across organizations, institutions. We need to support each other. You know, I could not have got through much of the stuff that's happened to me in my life. I'm, I'm a, I still am. I'm an Al-Qaeda death list. I've had far-right demonstrations outside of my door. You only survive those because you work together with other people and they support you and guide you. And so the lessons I've learned are, is that I can't do anything alone, despite the fact that I might think I can, I can't. And, you know, it's working with people like you and others across the world that we embolden ourselves. And we'll have bad days, Terry. God, we'll have bad days. And we think, you know, what is the point? But it's only when other people motivate us and inspire us that we keep going. And so those are the lessons, if anything, I've learned during my career. But I think the, the broadest lesson is that everything needs to be led by the survivor and their experience. And finally, leaders. The one thing that leaders are really bad at across the world in every sphere is listening. And I have built my career knowing I'm not the expert. You are. And there are people like you. If I listen to you, you tell me what needs to be done differently. I then see if I can open some doors to make it happen. And leaders need to do a lot more listening and a lot more acting on what they've heard rather than assuming they know it all or they can read it all in a book somewhere. Well, we've come to the point of our conversation where I ask every guest a series of questions that I've adapted from inside the Actors Studio called the Engendered Questionnaire. The first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? My daughter's potential, my daughter's life, my daughter's ability to achieve anything. And, the, and everybody else's daughter. I've dedicated my book to our children. By that, I don't mean my children. I mean all our children. They will fix the problems that we have. And that's what's at stake. What gives you hope? Again, the next generation. They make fewer mistakes than we do. They seem more passionate about this area of work. And they seem more committed. And final question. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? Less talking, more listening, and certainly more sharing of good stuff and good information. And we need to stop listening to people who think they know what they're talking about, uh, the Jordan Petersons of this world, and listen to the people who really do know what they're talking about, people like you. Thank you so much, Nazir. It was a pleasure to have you on our podcast. You're welcome, Terry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.